I'll let Frederick introduce himself, um, since I think the founder of AdSage, Sahil, and you met over in London at Hero Conference, and he said, you, you really have to get this guy in the podcast. Um, so I said, okay, that sounds good. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, and, and usually I ask folks, how did you get into the marketing space? Yeah, and I think I actually saw Jenna speak at a, an event in San Francisco as well, so we keep running into each other. Nice. But um, yeah, I've been doing, I started marketing in 1998 when I was in college at Stanford. I, uh, I found that Blockbuster was selling these videos at really cheap prices. Um, in the video rental industry, like the, when the video cassettes came out, they were really expensive, like a hundred bucks, and then they'd buy so many of them, so they'd resell them hmm. for 20 bucks uh, way before they were allowed to buy the movie studios. And, uh, and so I found this, and then I, I found that people on eBay would actually pay a good amount of money for these things. So I started buying these video cassettes, and then I was like, how do I drive more traffic to my eBay listings? And so I found GoTo and started buying PPC keywords that were really cheap back uh, back then. Nice. And um, I didn't make a ton of money. I wasn't particularly successful. I mean, it was enough to buy some drinks here and there, but uh, that got me started in the industry. And then um, out of college, had a different job. I was an engineer. And uh, that was back in 2000. So the whole dot-com bubble was imploding. So lost my job, had to figure out what to do next. Right. Became a digital wedding photographer in the San Francisco Bay Area. Wow. So you really um, have a, had a multi, multitude yeah. of jobs. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the thing there was, I, I, again, I, I knew what I was doing as a photographer, but I didn't have any customers. And AdWords had just come out with the self-service CPC solution from Google. And so I got onto that, got a bunch of customers my first summer as a photographer. And uh, I thought this is pretty cool. Um, how do I work at this company? And uh, they needed someone who spoke Dutch. I'm originally from Belgium. And uh, so they hired me so that I could translate AdWords in, the, in Dutch for the Dutch, uh, the Benelux market. And then I started supporting customers in the beginning. Uh, but because I had been advertising, I was doing, uh, I was working inside of Google. I had sort of these insights like, hey, we should probably offer people conversion tracking, which is something that I had built externally. Uh, and they were like, yeah, that's pretty cool. We should do that for everyone. And so I got more involved on the product side. And then, um, I mean, so conversion tracking, I think was my first interaction with the product team. And then I eventually was on the teams that started AdWords Editor, was on the team that bought Urchin, which is now Google Analytics, um, you know, did a lot of product related stuff. And then towards the end, I Google was more of an evangelist. So a spokesperson type deal. And I got to go to all these conferences and, uh, uh, you know, that's how I ended up meeting the ad stage folks. Right. And it must have been wild working at Google back in the day. I mean, it's at a time when you can just, I guess, go find them and say, hey, I use the product. I love it. And I speak Dutch. You got any jobs? Um, what was it like back? I, you worked there for, was it 10 years all in all? Yeah, 10 Ish. years. So I joined in 2002. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a very different place, right? So when I joined, it was about 400 people. Um, every person who joined got personally introduced. Uh, the team that I was on, we all fit in a conference room. I mean, that was like the AdWords support and sales team. Nowadays, they have obviously multiple offices to house those people. Um, and then that's kind of one of the reasons that I left too, because by the time I left, it was 40,000. So it had grown a hundredfold. Right. Um, and Google's got this cool, uh, cool little tool. It's called percent. So you type in your browser percent and then your username. And then it tells you how many employees are newer than you are at the company. That's funny. And then you can look through the list of who those people are uh, that are older than you. 
And so I was sort of stuck at 99.7%. I was like, okay, well, it's Sergey, it's Larry, it's uh, those yeah. folks who are ahead so of me. I don't think they're ever going to leave. So, you know, yeah. yeah. And so obviously you got to meet Larry and Sergey and, uh, and Eric Schmidt, I guess. Um, did, did, did you still keep in touch with those guys? I mean, was it a close-knit community back then? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of close-knit. I, mean, I wouldn't say that I'm particularly close with any of them. Um, I played hockey with Sergey. Um, so there's all these stories of the founders playing hockey in the parking lot, roller hockey. And yeah, That's uh, all true. You're uh, confirming that story. Yeah, that's definitely true. But uh, Larry, I think getting rough on his back or on his knee so he sort of backed off from playing hockey but sergey was pretty active and, and that's still to this day right sergey is like the sporty and the active guy right um you know larry's sort of more reverted to running the company again um but yeah so i used to play hockey with sergey and actually one of my first interactions with him was that i was uh i wasn't a full-time employee i was um at like temp to temp to full-time and uh, but I decided to go and play hockey in the in the parking lot, and everybody's wearing these face masks, so I couldn't quite tell it was Sergey. And you know, Sergey wasn't that big of a deal back then, right. so I checked him into one of the planters, um, and I wasn't really checking hockey. <laughs> I was like, sweet, now uh, now he can't fire me because if he fires me, then you know it'll, it'll be because uh, you know I'll, ha I'll have a suit against him. Right? But, yeah, that was you my have first interaction with Sergey, hanging over his head. Um, so I mean, was he a good hockey player? Oh yeah, he's awesome. Much better than I am. He's pretty good at everything he does. That's why you were checking him illegally. Yes, exactly. Slow him down. Um, so working on that AdWords editor team must have been a trip too, because um, I mean, to this day, I mean, the editor fan base is very vocal in what they want for the editor. And I, you know, I've been working in the platform space for you know over a decade, but never at Google. Always with the tool trying to build to Google APIs. And there's this natural tension between the third-party platforms which have an agenda and Google which has an agenda and sometimes they don't align. So when new features come out and Google wants adoption, you know, they look to the partners and the partners are all kind of like, well, you know, let's see how this new call-only extension does before we build it. And they, you know, of course came up with this concept of uh, RMF at some point. And I always yep. wondered with the editor team, was there that same, I don't call it conflict, but that same dynamic where you guys had to decide what features to add to editor and the, and the ads API team had some different opinions. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think it's interesting to look even before that sort of external um, friction, if you will, it was more the internal teams working with the very large customers. They naturally thought it was very difficult to do stuff through the AdWords interface. Um, and remember this is now what, 12 years ago. So, things weren't, the AdWords website actually would break once in a while. It wasn't particularly fast. Right. Um, one of my first uh, little field trips when I was at Google was we went to look at the server cages. Um, nowadays, they don't let people into, those, into that anymore. It's such a, a well-kept secret. But back then, we went in and they had all these beautiful racks of servers with all the cords neatly put into the right place. And like you could tell they put some time and effort into this. And then we're walking through this big data center and then we get to this one cage that really stands out because uh, it's large, but there's only a handful of servers and they're kind of like randomly standing on the floor and stacked on top of each other. Uh, they're Dell machines, so they weren't custom built. There's like red and orange warning lights blinking everywhere. So I'm like, what's, uh, what's this cage here? And they're like, well, that's, that's AdWords. All the rest is search and this is AdWords. 
Wow. So that kind of explains that in the early days, again, the infrastructure for AdWords was sort of, um, I mean, you don't necessarily want to call it an afterthought, but it wasn't as well developed as Google score search offering. Um, and so, yeah, using the AdWords interface was quite painful back then, could be quite painful. So all of these internal teams, they would have these bulk sheets, Excel sheets, basically of keywords that they wanted to upload for their customers. And that was the easiest way for them to communicate uh, with their customers. And then they'd have to figure out how to put that in. So we had this whole bulk sheet upload functionality, basically a bulk uploader, but without all the bells and whistles that was only internal to Google. Um, and as AdWords added complexity, um, that just became very confusing. So people would always submit a bulk sheet and it would always fail because they forgot a comma. They didn't put in one of the new fields. And so there'd be just as much time spent troubleshooting those spreadsheets as we were saving by doing it in some sort of an automated fashion. And so we got to the point where we were like, we have to have a better tool to let people do operations in bulk. And that's where the whole notion of the AdWords editor came out of. Um, and so it was interesting because we said, we're going to get rid of the box sheet. There's not going to be any more Excel when right. you're doing AdWords. And so we built the editor and like the first request that people have is, oh, this is awesome, but can we have some way to put my Excel sheet into it right. and then upload it? I was like, yeah, yeah that's exactly what we didn't want to do. But, uh, but there we go again. People, I mean, people love Excel. I always say there's three types of users in the world. People who love UI, people who love the offline editor tool, and then people who love spreadsheets. And, you know, as a, as a product guy trying to build a product for marketers, you, know, you can never make all three happy because as soon as you make one decision, the, the person who's in love with the spreadsheets is saying like, yeah, but where's the spreadsheet upload? Um, exactly. Yeah, you got to keep all of those things in sync. And so that's to your point. And I mean, eventually we, uh, we got to a stage where the features that we could build in editor were obviously dependent on the API supporting that. Um, and then also, like you were saying, the RMF. So for people who don't know the RMF, that's required minimum functionality. So any tool company like AdStage, like Optimizer, we have to abide by a certain minimum standard. And that's uh, the, the reason. So I was on the team that built that as well, or that put that in place. So uh -oh. apologies for that. But, uh, so everyone who has hate mail for any uh, Google yeah. required minimum functionality, you know where to send it now. Exactly. Uh, and just uh, let me just add on a little bit for folks who don't know RMF uh, at all. So I'm sure there's a lot of folks who are interested in quality score who this conversation might be a little bit uh, off topic, but it's interesting. And it's always good to get like the inside perspective from someone who's at Google during these formative years. Um, so basically, you have all these platforms that are building functionality to interact with the AdWords API, right? So um, in order to get your access, you need to build a certain list of features that Google kind of requires you to build. And usually it's because Google rolls out a new feature and they don't want all these third-party ad tools to be a blocker for their clients getting access to the new feature. So it makes total sense, uh, theoretically, why you would want all your partners, if you're Google, to implement new features. The counter argument is always, well, you know, if I'm trying to run an innovative startup and I want to build an awesome video tool, then having this long list of features that I have to build, which are pretty irrelevant to my business, uh, Google Shopping would be a great one. You know, if you have no clients that are in the e-commerce space, you still need to build Google Shopping. So there's that counter argument from the kind of the startup community saying it's too hard to build an AdWords tool. And the rumor is there's kind of this Google doesn't really love these third party tools anyway, so they don't mind if it's hard to get in the space because I'm guessing you guys prefer to uh, when you were there, you guys would prefer to have the direct relationship and have these partners. And that's kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit that um, whether they like third-party tools or not. 
I think I won. And it's exactly like you were saying, right? So these third-party tools would build to the lowest common denominator so that a feature would support both Bing Ads and AdWords. But AdWords is doing all these cool things. And so by building to the lowest common denominator, you wouldn't have access to the latest, say, flexible bid strategy. So they said, if you're going to have a tool, you really do need to build out that full functionality. And it made it more complicated. But at the end of the day, I think it is a good thing for users. And and so Google doesn't necessarily really mind having these third parties. And, and in fact, another thing, like sort of one of the decisions we had to make from a product management perspective was, do we build one AdWords for everyone or do we build an AdWords for travel advertisers and a different one for retailers? And in some ways that would have made sense, right? Because I mean, shopping ads, do you really need to have that type of a campaign in someone who, who sells travel products? No, it just clutters up the interface. So, so, but we said we don't want to have these different flavors of AdWords because then ultimately some people might have to have five, six accounts just to be able to access all the features. And so AdWords was thought of much more like an onion where you sort of layer on top of it. And as you need that next level of sophistication or next level of feature, you just open up um, that part of the interface. But it's certainly, and that's what we're seeing, you know, at Optimizer, and I'm sure that's also why AdStage exists is some of these things end up being not the easiest to do when Google has to build that interface for a million plus advertisers. And so we look at really specific workflows like A-B testing that an advertiser might do. Um, you can get the data to do this correctly from AdWords, but it's not easy. You typically have to go through Excel. So just downloading and, and manipulating the data, that by itself can take you half an hour. So we're like, okay, let's do that heavy data lifting for you present you with the optimization and then you can just click a button and say go and do it right but that's that would be over the heads of 999,000 advertisers um, and that's why we can build it for a small subset and, and do quite well with that um, and AdWords and we're actually making AdWords better because we're making them more money right I mean there's this <clears throat> famous story too about I think Nikesh someone at Google finding out about the partner ecosystem and like uh, throwing a chair across the table and canceling the partner program one year because he was kind of disgusted by what people were doing. Um, but then, like you said, kind of the relationship ebbed and flowed and eventually came back around and to your point as well. And I think it is, it's good for everyone. And for folks like AdStage who have already built all the Google RMF, we don't mind a lot of complex RMF because these are competitors out of the space. It doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, um, same. And Exactly. Um, and that Nikesh story, so I think that was, in, as I heard that, he was mostly out of London, right? So I didn't interact with him too much, but the context was um, partners or agencies were getting a discount on ads. And obviously in a system that's um, auction-based, it doesn't make sense for an agency to get a 10% discount and hence be able to bid 10% more. Whereas if that same advertiser came in directly, they, they would by default have a lower position at the same price. Um, so there was that unfairness that was in the system. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things where I do agree with Nikesh. There's many other things where I disagree with how he ran the business. Right. Um, and in fact, I mean, people were excited when he left, right? And, um, you know, I, I think with Omid, the culture of Google came back. Uh, now, obviously, he's moved on to do other things as well. Um, you know, moved on to Twitter. So it could be interesting to see what happens at Twitter next. Uh, uh, right. Because Nik Nikesh is definitely a top sales guy and he's really the guy who turned AdWord or who turned Google into uh, the business that it is today. So Larry and Sergey came up with the search algorithm, but it's really um, Omid who came up with how to monetize that. Omid and Salar who came up with the concept of 
of quality score? Uh, so that's actually a good segue uh, to talk more about quality score. So you're, you're kind of the expert at quality score. I think at multiple conferences, that's uh, the topic you speak on. So maybe to, to take a soft entry into it, maybe you could start by just uh, how do you explain what quality score is and how it works to someone who is maybe newer to AdWords? Yeah, so quality score is really one of the three factors that goes into determining your ad rank. Um, that's the simplest way to put it. Now, quality score has all these uh, stigmas and connotations and like what is quality score, it's kind of hard to understand. Uh, but really fundamentally, if you look at the history of AdWords, quality score is click-through rate. Uh, because back in the day, the way that Google would decide which ads would rank in what positions was very simple. They would take the maximum cost per click bid, multiply that by your click-through rate, and that was your ad rank. Super simple. So it was saying if you double your CTR, you have to pay only half as much in terms of CPC to maintain your same position, right? Or you could jump higher in position if you were continuing to bid at those same levels. Um, so quality score is a huge factor in how much you pay for AdWords. Um, it's also a huge factor in deciding uh, how many clicks you're going to get because the higher up on the page you are, obviously that's, uh, the, the CTRs do get to be pretty huge. Uh, it's not uncommon to see a 30% click-through rate for ads at the top of the page. Um, and you're lucky to get 2% if you're on the right-hand side all the way at the bottom. Um, and then you were on the team that worked on the original quality score algo, right? Yeah, and so I, I don't want to say I was on the original team that worked on it. I was on the team for about seven years. Um, I was on the team at the time that it became known as quality score. So after we moved away from the whole CTR, and uh, I was there at the time that we switched from CTR to predicted CTR. Um, and it was really interesting. I mean, there, there were so many changes that we did over the years, and some of them um, pretty bad in retrospect. But, you know, it, it's it's interesting because in the really early days of Google, when I joined, I could literally go and look at a keyword that an advertiser had bought, and I could hit a button that said, I think this keyword is irrelevant, hence it's disapproved forever. Um, but the whole thinking was, that's not the right way to go about it because, yeah, I could probably make that judgment about, you know, some consumer goods. But when it comes down to, uh, you know, plumbing supplies, uh, I mean, I don't know my gadget from my widget. Mm -hmm. So who am I to judge what's a relevant keyword? And so Google said, let's look at the wisdom of the crowd. Let's look at CTR, right? And so straight up CTR click-through rate is basically saying if we show the ad 100 times, how many people click on it? That click behavior, that's kind of an indication of how popular or how relevant this ad seems to be to people. Um, and so they took that into account, but then eventually they said, well, okay, looking at historical CTR, that's only one thing. Maybe we should be looking at predicted CTR, right? So we should look at all these factors that we know about the user, the auction, the location, and factor all of that into the equation. And so it became predicted CTR. And then um, eventually we, we said, well, let's name it something besides CTR or predicted CTR so that we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of the different ways that we put signals into this uh, into this metric, and then it became quality score. So over the years, you mentioned there were a few kind of poor choices on things that were added to quality score, and I'm sure there were some uh, really good ideas. So maybe what are some of the best and worst additions to quality score? Well, I mean, I think quality score in and of itself is like the most brilliant uh, thing, really. It's the thing that made Google as successful as it is today because advertising online was extremely broken uh, back you know a decade ago. People wouldn't look at ads because they were always intrusive. They were not 
on topic. And, uh, and, and nowadays we see the same thing again, right? We have all these ad blockers because the mobile ad experience is actually, it's, it's horrendous. You load up a page on your mobile device and the text keeps jumping around because ads are loading and then they're sitting on top of your page. And so uh, it, it's understandable people want to block these ads. And the same thing was true for um, search advertising back then. So Google didn't have search advertising, but Yahoo, um, uh, AltaVista, all of these others, they did. And these ads were not topical. They were not um they were not relevant so google put in place quality score to make sure that the ecosystem was working well um so that 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 in and of itself was a great thing one of the bad things that we did is at one point we said we're going to um uh, so, so rather than disabling keywords for poor relevance we're going to say you can have a certain percentage of your good keywords as credits for trying keywords that we think are really bad Okay, and so the way that that worked out was, say you had a thousand keywords, a mm -hmm. um, hundred of those were really good. You'd get say a 10% credit. So 10 of the ni next 900 keywords where Google wasn't so sure they were good, you'd get to test out, build up some data. Um, and that, that was great because instead of these ads, these keywords being disapproved, you actually got a chance to prove to Google that you were relevant. Uh, but what happened is the 10 keywords that we picked were always the lowest volume ones. So they'd basically be in testing phase for six months. And then you'd have this queue of thousands of keywords sometimes sitting behind it. And advertisers said, well, how do I get my next batch of keywords? Like, I know these keywords are not the most important ones. How do I just bypass that? Uh, but the whole system was automated. So there was just nothing we could do. And, uh, and it was so at various stages, it's been really painful for advertisers to deal with the fact that Google comes down and says, this is not relevant. Hence, you do not get to advertise on it. Uh, nowadays with the bid and the first page bid, top of page bid, you actually get to bid a lot of money. And if Google thinks you're not relevant, I mean, you make up for it by paying $1,000 cost per click, um, if that's what you want to do. And then if you can prove that actually you were good, your cost is going to come down. Um, but uh, it's, it's a better system than Google flat out saying, no, that's not a keyword you can ever use again. So when people ask you about the current state of quality score and what are the most important factors in, in making sure you're, you have good quality score, what are the, the three things you tell them? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's what Google publishes, right? So it's the historical click-through rate. It's the relevancy factors. That's kind of the hand-waving portion of quality score. Right. And then there's the landing page quality. And so the, the CTR, the first component, that's pretty easy to understand. That's fundamentally the same thing that Google has always looked at, which is on Google search only, when the keyword matches exactly to the query, what is the click-through rate behavior been historically? That's it. The second one, the relevancy factors, that's where they get more into the predictive CTR and they look at auction time signals. Um, and this is, this is kind of the cool part of the system. This is where they can say, if you have certain factors, how do they tend to correlate with click-through rate? Um, so a simple example is if you have advertisers who have a billing address in the United States, uh, but the user is, has an IP address in Canada, is that typically a good thing or a bad thing for CTR? Right? There's no, there's no answer to that other than measuring it. So we look, oh, typically that actually uh, reduces the CTR. Okay, that makes sense. So now it's uh, anytime you have an advertiser um, based in the United States, showing an ad in Canada, there may be a slight decrease in the quality score at the time of the auction because of that one signal. Um, so Google, at one point, we looked at a signal like lunar cycle. Does the lunar phase yeah. actually impact people's click behavior? Uh, yeah. We found that, no, it did not, 
right? But but we looked at it, and we, if that was a signal, we would have used it. Um, well, I mean, that's pretty wild, right there. That um, and does Google publish any of this stuff um, publicly? That things like the lunar cycle go into your uh, no, so that's that's a story I get to tell. Um, they, there are some patents that you can look up that basically explain how the system works. Um, and I think it may even have some ideas for which signals Google might look at. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, I don't think it's that important to to know exactly what the one signal is because because it's also not a signal that I could game, right? So it's not like Google is looking at my account being in the US advertising to Canada and what that does for me. It's more saying every time this happens across the millions of advertisers that we have, what does the pattern seem to be? So it's very difficult for me to go and game it. Um, but, and it's actually a really positive thing because if you think the keyword like jobs in the past, um, if you were if you were the producers of the movie about Steve Jobs, you could have never run an ad on that. It would have been irrelevant because the majority of people looking for jobs are looking to be employed. Um, but now because of the real time query signals, Google might know, oh, people who live in the Silicon Valley. Uh, people who've done these types of searches before, people who you know meet certain conditions, they might actually want to see the ad for the movie about Steve Jobs when they search for jobs. So now these keywords that would have been impossible to advertise on in the past, Google can say, oh, there's this small subset of queries where it's actually relevant, and automatically they're going to show the ads. Um, so from the advertiser's perspective, it means you're showing up in more relevant scenarios. And you don't have to constantly fight the whole uh, disapproved for relevance reasons, uh, right. status that, that no no longer exists. So I don't know superheroes well. If I did, there's probably one that controls the moon. And if so, uh, they have a distinct AdWords advantage. That's yeah, exactly. one thing we've learned today. Um, the I'm curious to know if there's any other of these kind of more off the beaten path quality score components, like the, the billing address is a great one. I mean, I used to be in a local space and I can't tell you how many businesses would buy PO boxes and mostly for Google local or Google maps or whatever you want to call it these days, but because they want, they knew they would um, rank better both organically and paid if they had a billing address in, mm -hmm. in the area, but it was a theory. And you know, half of us are looking at them like, well, you're crazy. Uh, so anyway, are, are there any other pieces uh, like that? So yeah, that sounds like a pretty valid theory. Um, another good example was uh, the location. Um, and, uh, and so the example here was in Bentonville, Arkansas, a home of uh, Walmart. Now, Bentonville is not the largest city in the United States by a long shot, right? It's not a very big city. Um, and so the Walmart team, they would go online every day and they would do searches for keywords that they know they were buying. But they would never click on them because why would they pay the CPC? They just wanted to make sure the ads were showing up. So Google uh, looked at the signal of uh, particular brands in particular cities uh, to figure out if people in those cities like those brands by click behavior. And so they saw, well, there's actually a lot of searches happening for uh, Walmart, where Walmart is one of the ads, but nobody ever clicks on them. And so one day the Walmart ad stopped showing in Bentonville, Arkansas. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, the, uh, the higher ups at Walmart, they freaked out. They thought right. it was offline for the whole country. And they called up and we looked at that and we said, well, maybe that signal was a little bit too aggressive. And, and exactly because if such a small group of people can really influence the outcome of the, uh, the ad rank, then it's probably not something we should be doing, right? It's too easy to potentially go and game. Um, but that's another one of those signals. Uh, another one that comes to mind is the, the number of times you're 
keyword needs to be, to appear in the ad text. Um, you know, so people will ask, uh, do I need to put in the headline in the description line? Do I have to put it in three times? Like what works? And I actually don't know the answer, but again, this is one of those things where Google would look at, okay, if the keyword appears in the ad text, is that typically a good thing or typically a bad thing? Um, I would think it's typically a good thing, right? So it's something you should do, but don't focus too much on should you have it three, four times, just make sure the ad stands out because at the end of the day, you know, there's that one signal that Google may look at, but then ultimately what they really deeply care about is your performance with certain keywords. So Google right. might look at these um, kind of system-wide signals in the cases where they don't know what's going to happen for your ad. But if your ad has a really strong track record, which you can get, by the way, by differentiating yourself from your advertisers, right? So if everybody's putting the keyword in the headline and in description line one, well, then all of the ads look the same and there's no point in me picking one over the other. So if I can stand out, boost my own CTR, Google is going to catch on to that and they're going to give me a much better uh, ranking in the, in the next auction that comes up. I feel like in all these conversations, whether it's SEO or kind of how to improve quality score, there's always that uh, caveat, we should say, which is if you write good quality ads and you take time to add test, and um, most of this is a point right because you will be rewarded with ctr because you have good ads um but if you're i'd say a big advertiser where you're building ads at scale maybe you're doing um i don't know it's going to say something like product ads but which leads me to another question i should actually ask you in a sec but uh, moral of the story regular ads you don't have to worry about how many times the keyword shows up a lot like the seo conversation if your website is good and relevant has good content you keep it fresh you won't have to worry about 99 percent of the seo tactics um, which leads me to my question. Um, so look, I've talked to a few engineers Facebook recently, and they keep talking about moving away from this concept of even having like marketers drive the targeting because it's such a blunt instrument that we use as marketers these days. Because you know, Google in the background is using lunar cycles and you know all kinds of crazy stuff. When I worked at Kenshu, we had a lot of kind of algo bidding that would look at you know the number of characters in a keyword, what letter the keyword starts with. A uh, bunch of other stuff that's also in their patent. People want to read it uh, to the point where, like, no human can understand why things were being bid the way they were because there was some correlation that was found. Do you see the role of the marketer in kind of choosing keywords and picking this targeting as something we'll even be doing in the next, you know, twelve to eighteen months? Yeah, I mean, I think in the short term we're going to continue to do a lot of this, but I, I do believe you see that movement towards more automation and stuff like DSA dynamic search ads where Google basically figures out what the queries are. Um, that makes sense. I mean, they have a great organic understanding of your website. And so they probably know what keywords you should be showing up for. Um, and then it's a feedback loop, right? So now they show your ad and they measure, did that actually lead to a click? Did it lead to a click where the person stayed on the page? Did it lead to a click where the user seems to have been engaged with that page? So that's a high quality click. So let's do more of these. Uh, let's do fewer of the ones where you don't see those positive signals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Eric was also talking about that vision quite a long time ago where he's basically like, you tell us your margins, you write us a blank check, and we'll print money for you. Um, and, and that's the thing about PPC that a lot of people sometimes still think about it as marketing, but in many ways, it's like it's like your sales force, right? You... You can lose money on AdWords if you choose, but you can also make it a profit center, um, depending on how good you are at it. But uh, but that, that's a pretty 
key distinction. I think that's the vision that Eric has had for a long time, and I think we are certainly seeing a shift towards that. So from my perspective, it means that as, as practitioners, we need to move in one of two directions. Either we have to become really good at writing code so that we can write up algorithms that compete with Google's automation, um, right? I have my own bid logic in my head for because I know a certain business really well. So rather than giving it to the black box of Google flexible bid strategies, let me write the rules and let me execute on those and let me develop those as I uh, learn more and more. Or let me choose alternatively my own learning system, my own big data systems, uh, rather than just trusting it to Google. So you can do you, become, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and then, you know, practically speaking, do you give people advice to do, to do one of those things? Um, sorry, say that again. So, I mean, you're laying out kind of your options, right? Write your own algo, which is probably beyond most people's uh, capability. Um, maybe B is rely on what Google has to offer. C is go to some third party who can translate what you, you know about the market into an right. algo. Um, do you really see people doing the third one successfully? Well, yeah, so I, I think I talked to a lot of people and they've all tried bid automation systems. Um, and it usually starts off not so good and then the system learns and all of a sudden gets good and then all of a sudden results decline and you don't know why. So I think ultimately people in the long term are not well served by those black box mechanisms where they have very little input into what can be done. Um, and I think Google could actually make that better, right? So if Google could understand that you're a retailer and last year during the holiday season, your numbers were skewed because you had a marketing person who really screwed up and you mm -hmm. fired them, right? But Google doesn't know these things. So Google looks at, oh, last holiday season, they performed pretty poorly. So this Black Friday, even though this company spent millions of dollars fixing stuff up, we're still going to assume they're not going to be that good. Um, right? And then that's the disconnect that you see. So if you take control over those systems yourselves, now you can say, well, last year is not a good look back window because of these factors. Uh, or maybe last year we can use it as a baseline, but let's say it would have been 20% better had we done some of these things that we, we are now doing. Um, and that's where I really think that having that control, that insight, um, really puts you in a much better position. Now, I'm not saying do all of this manually, right? I'm saying write up, and when I say write up the algorithm, it's not necessarily that complicated. It could be as easy as just having a set of bid rules. You know, if this, then that. Most of us know how to write those conditions. We've all used if uh, at some point. You can basically do the same thing for bid management. Um, but where AdWords falls really short in that regard is automated bid rules, for example. You can only act um, at one level of the account. So if you're going to do keyword level bids, you have to make decisions on the keywords data. Um, if you've done a good structuring of your account to get good quality score, um, and that's, that typically means small ad groups with the ad text tightly related to your keywords, and probably not more than 30 keywords in an ad group, while your ad groups may be so small now that you don't have enough data at each keyword level or even at the ad group level to, to, to see what the conversion rate is that you should be using. Um, and so Google's rules, automated rules, don't let you go higher up into the account and say, let me use my campaign level conversion rate as a substitute. Um, right. right. So and, and that's where it really matters to have the right tools that give you a little bit more flexibility. Well, A, you give me some faith in humanity that uh, the machines have not taken over every job. The robots have not won yet. 
Um, Mark Levy kind of asked the question, yeah, do, will businesses be okay with automation? Um, yeah, I wonder how many times, so when I was at have like you mentioned, an algo that was you know, struggle in the beginning until I had a good data set, and it was sort of, generally speaking, nine times out of 10, it would drop the CPA, right? Because it was making decisions on stuff much uh, more intelligently than we could. Um, and then over time, you know, it depended, we need to tweak algos and whatnot. But I feel like we spent a lot of time convincing people to like not worry about how the decisions were being made and it didn't work. We still had, we had to hire people that would literally go to agencies and big companies and explain to them the general principles of the algo, give them some examples of some decisions it made. And essentially they were pitching the idea of like, don't worry about it. Like, it, right. you know, we don't know exactly why this decision was made, but we can show you all the things that went into the decision. Uh, and people didn't like that. At the end of the day, people were like, yeah, but I want to turn my ads off on Sunday. And you would, you know, spin up all these reasons why maybe that's not the best idea. It's the lunar cycles and zip codes. And, yeah, and that's, that's why I'm such a big fan of AdWords scripts, by the way, is when you look at tool companies like ours, we have pre-built methodologies, which we've spent obviously a lot of time thinking about, have data scientists putting this together. So, you know, this, this some investment has gone into this and this is not just, uh, you know, something we came up with last Sunday, right? Um, but then the benefit of a script is that you can take all of that hard work that we've done and you can tweak it to that next level to put in that logic of we don't run ads on Sundays. Um, and that's really powerful. And, and so those scripts that AdWords now has had for about uh, three years or so, I think if people haven't looked at that, that's really something to start considering. Well, I will say the argument, so first of all, I agree, scripts are awesome, AdWords scripts, and if you haven't checked them out, uh, you know, Google it and learn all about them. And they're pretty user-friendly, so even if you're not familiar with writing scripts, there's a ton of kind of online help for them. Um, the, uh, what's the point I was gonna make? The counter-argument to the, so when you go pitching, you say, oh, it's the machines are doing all the bidding, don't worry, was what you just said, you know, there's, well, we wanna turn things off on Sunday because there's stuff you don't know about you know, algo, right? You don't know that like our worst customer service people man the phones on Sunday and we don't want to send a ton of calls into the call center. You know, you don't know that, you know, our lowest our lowest profit margin product is the one that's getting most of the transactions because I don't push my, you know, profit data into AdWords perhaps. So that was always the, the, the argument is either Google has the data it needs to fully do optimization to the same level you can, or, and that's often by choice, because there's a lot of companies that have the fog, the fear of Google, yeah. that just didn't want their data kind of in Google's hands. Um, or it's still that art side of the art and science of paid search, where there's a lot of art that goes into kind of crafting your ads and just, and, you know, as human beings, we can take in a lot of signals and make some intuitive decisions that are pretty complex about why we want to change budgets and bids. But so that's a plug for humanity. Um, yeah, so absolutely. talk a little bit about Optimizer then, because you, you left Google, you started your own company. Uh, it sounds like a lot of what we're talking about uh, became the foundation for that. So why did you just uh, decide to start Optimizer and give us the, the pitch on what exactly it does? Yeah, so um, after I left Google, the easiest way for me to make a little bit of money was to start consulting on AdWords accounts. And I very quickly find myself not managing accounts, but being on the phones with people all day long and promising that I could all, do all of these great things that I knew how to do, but then I'd run out of time by the end of the day. Um, because to my dismay, all of these tools that I had helped build to manage AdWords were actually not that fast for the things that agencies or consultants would typically do. Um, so I started looking at tools like Aquizio, Marin, 
Um, I looked at WordStream, um, didn't play with AdStage, didn't play with Kenshu, but so I looked at a variety of tools and I found they were either too expensive. So as a consultant, I couldn't afford to spend 4% of my ad budget um, on paying a tool company or the, the tool was cheaper, but it didn't actually do very much. So it'd give me nice reports, but I'd still have to go in and make all the manual changes. So right around that time, I happened to have lunch with one of my former uh, product manager friends from Google. And he was like, hey, there's this scripting functionality. We've had it out for six months. Nobody's using it. It's a tremendous shame. Like there's so much power here. So I went home that afternoon after lunch, built my first script. And I was like, oh my God, this is the, the best thing since sliced bread when it comes to AdWords. And, uh, and so I started publishing these scripts and people liked them. Um, so then we started looking at ways to, to, to make it really easy to manage for MCC accounts, to make it really easy to make sure the script wouldn't break if Google made changes, to have you put in your own settings. And so we built a company around that. And so nowadays we really have four pieces of our, uh, of our tools. So we manage AdWords ads, Bing ads. Uh, we integrate with Google Analytics and Google Merchant Center. And so we do data insights where we um, quality score, for example, we have a historical quality score tracking tool. We also calculate your account level quality score. So the point is we visualize Google's data in a way that actually makes sense more quickly, more intuitively. Uh, second area of the product is one-click optimization. So here we take that data insight where you see some interesting thing and we actually help you make the change that you probably would want to do as a result of that new insight. So literally, we process the data, we say, here it is, you can tweak it as you see fit and then apply it with a single click. Uh, we have reporting, so uh, reporting is a big deal for agencies. So rather than doing that manually every single month, we put that on a schedule where you have templates. And then we have the enhanced scripts. So uh, all of these quick little scripting functionalities that we build, we host them on our platform and then people can use them very easily. So, uh, so we've been doing that for about two and a half years and it's been really fun, you know, still doing kind of exactly what I was doing at Google, but now doing it for my own company. Nice. And um, we can post the link to the company for uh, folks who don't know. It's Optimizers uh, spelled, uh, maybe you could spell it. Yeah. O-P-T-M-Y-Z-R. There you go. Um, oh, there you go. And it's on the t-shirt. Nice. Yeah. Um, there you go. Thanks, Gil. Um, and the, so let's, so I do want to talk about some of the top stories from this week in ad tech. So we put out a newsletter every week called this week in ad tech. Uh, we'll post a link for that too. You could sign up for it. Um, and then learn about ad tech or indulge in some stories about, uh, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram. Um, so I do want to run through that, but before I do, I want to give you closing thoughts on quality score. So any, you know, uh, pro tip on quality score that people should absolutely know? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately don't think about it too hard. Think about CTR. If you can boost your click-through rate, that's really the thing Google cares about the most because that's ultimately what makes Google more money. So that really is what quality score is all about. It just quality score is different ways for Google to measure CTR in different situations. So focus on boosting your CTR. And that means a couple of things have really tightly structured ad groups, multiple ad texts, no more than 30 keywords. Uh, take advantage of all of the ad extensions that you have. It doesn't go into quality score, but it still does boost your ad rank. Um, match types. Any match Match types don't matter, so use whatever match type makes sense for you. Um, do use different match types if you want to have different bids, for example. 
negatives don't matter from a quality score perspective. Uh, of course, negatives are very helpful in terms of making sure you hit your cost per acquisition targets. Um, and that's sort of where this conversation, you don't want to focus too much on quality score, right? Because the things to make your quality score better are not necessarily going to give you more money. Uh, I, I just talked to a customer last week who had a quality score of one and was making a ton of money on that keyword and they just could not do anything to make that keyword have a better quality score. Yeah. And so don't delete that obviously, right? Um, uh, but some, we did some recent studies um, and one thing we saw is give keywords at least 100 impressions before making a decision. It takes Google roughly 100 impressions before they know what your real quality score is gonna be. Nowadays, they've changed the system. So new keywords or those where they don't have enough information will start at a quality score of six. Whereas two, three months ago, they would start at a predicted quality score based on all these other factors. Um, so if your keyword is still at a quality score of six, uh, and by the way, that's a, a pretty big insight, right? A lot of people think if it's below seven, it's bad. Mm -hmm. Six is actually the average that Google says today. So six, I would leave it. If it drops below a six after 100 impressions, then you should think about how do I get a more relevant ad text? And if you still can't make it better and you're not making money on the keyword, that's when you potentially want to remove it from your account. Do the quality scores for multiple, like does quality score bubble all the way up to the account level and or MCC level? Uh, not the MCC level, so at the account level, um, there is this notion of account level quality score. Um, and so people can disagree with me on that. So Hal Variant, Google's chief economist, actually wrote a paper that said there is no account level quality score. Um, and I believe he's right in terms of it's not a published number. It's not a number that you can call your rep and say, hey, tell me what is my account level quality score. Um, but we're talking here about a learning system. Quality score is a learning algorithm. And a learning system does have to rely on bigger signals when it doesn't have enough data about a specific element. And so the, the point I'm trying to make is if Google doesn't know this keyword with this ad text, how is that going to perform? They might look at, well, as an advertiser sort of in that whole account, are you typically pretty good or worse than average? Uh, and based on that, they can set a starting level quality score. Um, so that does come into play when you're adding new keywords to the account. Yeah. At the MCC level, not so much. Uh, Google does save that data at the domain level. So if you use the same domain across multiple accounts, some, uh, some information gets passed around that way. Uh, but not necessarily at the MCC account level. So from a structural perspective, uh, Google doesn't even look at campaign ID or ad group ID. They just look at uh, basically what is the keyword to the ad text combination. So that's your ad group structure. But if you move that same structure to a different ad group, it's going to be the same thing. Um, same thing with the targeting. So Google looks at what is the targeting for this campaign. Uh, that's what matters. It's not the name or the ID of the campaign that matters. And do you quick follow up on that? So Domains is that get shared as well? Yeah, so subdomains, so anything in the visible URL that could influence people to, uh, you know, click more, certainly going to help you. And I wish we had you at the uh, the marketing roundtable. We used to fight about this like ten years ago, five years ago, yeah. about like should we get a new account or not. Um, and then you brought up another question in my head about quality score. Um, so account level. Oh, so based on this kind of change, so recently, from what you're saying, Google took this method of saying, okay, new keywords, you get a quality score of six until approximately 100 impressions, and then it starts to move, which was a, a shift from using a more, much more complicated way of predicting it. Have you seen a change in performance for a new campaign since that change? 
somewhat minimal. Um, I mean, it depends how far you were from the average before that. And that's where a tool like Optimizer is really helpful because you could have seen, okay, my account level quality score from Google's perspective was a seven. So now that Google considers the average a six and everything starts at a six instead of a seven for me, um, that's not going to have that dramatic of an impact. If you started off at tens across the board because you had an awesome account and now you're starting off at sixes, yeah, there's a small CPC impact that we've seen. But on the flip side, if Google thought you had a horrendous account, maybe worthy of a one quality score, um, all of a sudden you're now benefiting from the fact that Google says, well, all this new stuff, let's start it at the average. Now, the, the, the notion of 100 impressions before Google knows your quality score, they often do it much, much quicker, right? So after 10 impressions, if you have a horrendous account, they might say, oh yeah, this stuff still horrendous. Right. And you start paying a lot for it again. Um, but it, it's kind of in those cases where they're not sure that we see it taking up to 100 impressions. So do you ever recommend people actually get new accounts if they just are stuck? Yeah, we've recommended that, especially if you inherit a really poorly structured account. Sometimes it makes sense to just rebuild it. Um, you know, if you're going to get a new account and just do an AdWords editor dump of the old one and put it into the new one, you're really not going to get much benefit. It'll take a few hours before Google figures out, oh, this is exactly the same thing it was before. Boom, right back to the, the poor quality scores. But if you take that new account as an opportunity to restructure, write better ad text, um, you know, figure out if you have a new domain that you can link it to, uh, those things will actually help you. Thanks for duplicated accounts just to see if someone's kind of doing that and instantly, if they identify it, send them back to the quality score they had. Yeah, that's the other thing, right? So Google maintains historical data about all of this. So if you make a change, you find it's not working, you can always revert back to what it was before. Um, and you'll bet you'll be not necessarily exactly at the quality score from before because now there is some new data in the mix, uh, but generally you're gonna be pretty close. And that's, I guess I'm thinking of people, so back in the day we used to tell folks who, who just couldn't get out of the two, three quality score, go create a new account. But then we do what you just said not to, which was just copy and paste the old account to the to the new account. Uh, and it sounds like Google was onto us and that would quickly earn the uh, two to three quality score as well. So that was, that was a bad move. And so, I mean, so that may have been a trick that worked for a little while. And actually speaking of like the, uh, the little secrets, so I do have one secret that's I think pretty cool. Um, if you run shopping ads, product listing ads, they also have a quality score. And the quality score when I last checked was based on the product ID. And that's a field that you can define. So if you have really poor performance for certain products and you think it's due to the fact that Google thinks you have a bad CTR, go ahead and change the product ID. That will reset the quality score. Uh, on the flip side, if you've been performing really well and someone comes to you and says, hey, can we change the product IDs just to make it easier to read in the reports and understand what these are, um, be very cautious because that will also reset it and, and get you back to the average. That is a very good pro tip right there um, for our shopping advertisers. Yeah. Uh, so let's take a look at what's going on this week in ad tech. We put out, I don't know, 30 headlines from this week. So maybe we'll bust through them. We have uh, about 10 minutes left. Curious to get your thoughts on a few of these. I don't know how much you follow what Twitter is doing, but you mentioned Nikesh, who used to be, let's just call him head of monetization, something like that, at Google for many years. Went over to Twitter. How closely so do you... Mean, right? um, how closely do you follow 
what Twitter's doing and and do you think it seems like their revenue well, the revenue has been growing kind of at a, at a good clip user base not so much and having some trouble uh, monetizing things like Periscope and Vine do you keep an eye on Twitter and do you have any kind of general thoughts about uh, their success as an ad marketplace yeah so I, so Nikesh went to SoftBank and Omid who was the early Google guy he's now at Twitter um and so I, I think, like I said, I think he's going to bring potentially great culture there and he certainly knows how to make a sale. So, um, and, and plus he's a nice guy, right? So I think people like working with him. So I think that's going to be a good thing. Um, I think Twitter has tons of other issues. Um, I really like Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot. And I think people in the PPC industry are all on Twitter, but you talk to people outside of our industry and it's like, why would you use Twitter? Right. So I, I still see Twitter as this really great news distribution platform, um, but it's it's too complicated to use for the average user. And so I think that's going to be uh, is going to remain an issue But this whole Twitter moments thing that they've done. Um, I think that's pretty compelling, but people are saying it doesn't go deep enough. Right. So it's not compellingly better than something like Facebook or some other options that people have. Um, well, and so let me just. Uh, poke in there because for if you're under a rock or maybe if you're not in PPC, you don't know that Twitter launched Moments, which is their attempt at news aggregation. It seems like everyone is trying to be in the news aggregation space, which makes sense considering you know, the traditional publishers are, are struggling. Um, so Facebook has uh, Notify, a standalone news app, and I was reading that the Snapchat, which I haven't used yet, but it's on my every every podcast. I say I need to use Snapchat. I've yet to do it. Um, is also they have a discover feature and uh, the CEO of BuzzFeed, uh, Jonah Peretti, went on record as saying 21% of traffic uh, comes from Snapchat for BuzzFeed, which those two kind of sound like they, those audiences are somewhat shared. But So anyway, to your point, everyone's getting a news aggregation and Twitter uh, still, still not finding their stride, but it's early days. Exactly. And then, uh, you know, it's, I, I've got lots of friends at Twitter. Um, and I hear very mixed reviews about the capabilities of their internal teams. Um, you know, Google was really built around hiring rock stars who can do some amazing stuff. And I think Twitter is struggling a little bit in that regard. I think they're missing some of the rock stars that they need. So I think Omid is one of those rock stars that can really move the needle, but he is going to have to work with, um, sort of the legacy, uh, company that, that's there. Right. Um, and then for those who don't know, I think Twitter had two events in the last month. They had their, um, what do they call it? Flight conference, which is their engineering conference. And then last week they had Inside Twitter, which was their agency event. And one of the things they launched is an integration with a Google product, uh, DoubleClick. Well, they announced two different things. One was an integration so you can get your Twitter impression data into DoubleClick for attribution and reporting. Another is a future integration with DoubleClick Bid Manager. So Theoretically, you can buy Twitter ads through uh, DoubleClick. The first piece they've kind of talked about a bunch in the media, and it's, it seems like it's out and people are using it. Uh, any thoughts on on that unlikely kind of combination of Google and Twitter? Um, well, I mean, let me talk about attribution, right, which is kind of what they were announcing there. And so my stance is that I don't believe in attribution. Um, Right. Why don't I believe in attribution? I think as a marketer, you can look at the numbers any way you want and tell to tell the story that you want to tell. For most people, that's what attribution is. Mm -hmm. um, so attribution can be hugely helpful if you actually measure the correct impact. So if you 
Um, don't run Twitter ads in one region. Say you turn off Twitter in Portland, but you do tweet to people in Seattle or you buy ads to people in Seattle, two very similar markets, and you measure the impact on your overall business. Now you can actually say, okay, Twitter contributes some percentage uh, or loses some percentage. You, know, you figure out what the impact is. That's your number. In that case, attribution is very valid. I think most people don't take it to that degree. They just say, oh, look, there were five touch points with Twitter ads, hence, okay, let's assign some value to them. And then they go into a tool like DoubleClick or Google Analytics, and they just pick from six different models until they find the one that tells the story they want to tell their managers. And that's the story that gives them more budget, right? So then what's the point of attribution? Um, the point at some level is you need to get you need to tell that story because otherwise you don't get the budget, so you fall behind your competitors. Um, but really, do people understand the real impact? No, I don't think they do. I think it's a real great ploy by Google, Twitter, all of these companies to try to attribute as much value to them as possible without necessarily backing it up with real numbers. And that's where, I mean, I'm always skeptical if a company that's doing my attribution is owned by the publisher that's trying to convince me to spend money on their platform. Yeah. Not that I think there's nefarious folks, but it's just a conflict of interest, right? Um, and, you know, working at a, an algo company in my prior life, um, I will say I'll defend attribution a bit because there were some attribution studies which were done where we'd see things like uh, ad attribution. So forget about network, but you'd see which ads got clicked on in the multi click path. So I can see that this Facebook ad, this Google ad, and this Bing ad, and I can see the creatives and it might inform me as a marketer to use that creative more because it's uh, some high converting creative and kind of maybe flighting. So, you know, Facebook right now with carousel ads is pushing those aggressively and you, know, you can pre kind of order the, the images and the ad copy. So it might inform things like that. Uh, but I, I would tend to agree yeah. that uh, marketers love attribution because it shows that they're doing a great job, no matter yeah, what. And, I let, and let me agree with what you said as well. So uh, Google has this data-driven attribution model that's part of, I think, Google Analytics, uh, the, the enterprise-level version. And so what they can do in that case is they can say, okay, if people did a search for this keyword and then that keyword, or if they did those same two searches, but it was preceded by one additional search for this specific keyword, what was the overall lift in performance? Um, and so that's where attribution is actually meaningful because it's it's real impact to your bottom line. Um, I think a lot of attribution solutions just don't get to that level um, because they're kind of like making too many assumptions. Right. Um, and there's some dramatic lighting in my face right now. So part of me yeah. has some random pieces. I put the... the sun came out. Huh? Are you in San Francisco? Yeah, I'm in San Francisco, and we have this. Uh... Oh, it's oh, there. We go. Oh, never mind. It's unblockable. I'll just have to deal with it for the last few minutes. Um, so a, just a few other random things that I want to bring up. Um, I was going on a rant about Pinterest, which apparently I found very uh, interesting because I didn't notice the camera cut out. Um, I mentioned 60 million viable pins are now on the platform. Any thoughts on Pinterest? Um, not really a ton of thoughts on Pinterest. I like the whole shop buttons that we're supposed to see on Google and all of these platforms. I mean, I buy a ton of stuff and I'm really still not seeing many of these shop buttons, uh, kind of like what Pinterest is doing. So um, I don't know how big that's going to be. I, I don't know what they're testing, what the holdup is. Um, I mean, the, the mental model makes sense. And I, I work a lot more with Google Shopping and just seeing how like 34% of all 
clicks for retailers now come from Google Shopping. It makes total sense that people might want to purchase stuff that they see on Pinterest that they like. Yeah. Um, I just haven't seen it be a, a big volume quite yet. And maybe uh, any quick thoughts on Google Shopping? Like you said, big migration, I mean, what was it, two years ago? Google mm -hmm. pretty much pushed everybody to, to paid Google Shopping. Um, any yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, if you look at text ads, they are kind of short on a lot of information. So if you want to buy a product, obviously it makes sense to show an image, to show the price, to really standardize what that looks like. And I think that's why shopping ads are quite successful. Uh, that and the fact that Google is really pushing them uh, to, to replace some of the organic results or some of the other ad results. So I'm very bullish. Um, on those shopping ads. We, we definitely manage them for people. And my biggest disappointment in the beginning was Google wasn't doing a very good job of making it easy to manage. So we built a number of tools around that. Uh, but lately they've been doing quite a few new launches. So they've added filters, they've added flexible bid strategies. Um, so definitely uh, much easier to use, but you know, kind of disappointing that it took two years for them to get to this point. Well, and in the vein of Pinterest, they made another announcement uh, that they're going to start capturing location data. So if you're using the Pinterest app um, and you're, I guess, using its place pins service, which I'm not exactly sure what that is. I assume that's if, you've, if you're ever pinning anything on uh, Pinterest, um, they're going to start to track you, right? So they could use that for ad serving. And Facebook recently announced they're going to start exposing some of that location who have, you know, uh, you want to see how many people are within X mile radius and some demographic psychographics about that group. They'll give you some aggregated anonymous data. It's not clear exactly what it is yet. Um, how about Google along those lines? I mean, do you see them doing something similar, starting to open up some of the data about the users oh, yeah, who are in the store? Absolutely. And I think they're feeling the pressure from Facebook. And so now with the, uh, the custom audience lists where you can import your MailChimp database, for example, or your email list and then start targeting to those folks like that's something they would have never done in the past um, but it makes sense right and I think people are getting more comfortable with sharing that data and then Google tries to layer on lots of options for the consumer to opt out of using those tools but ultimately I mean we get pretty good uh, better ad results and I think that's what we all want to see um, you know I know we're at the top of the hour here but maybe like a final little story is I used to make presentations and I would ask people in the room, how many of you have never clicked on an ad on Google? And half of the audience would raise their hands. Mm -hmm. And I would look at them and I would say, well, Google makes $60 billion. Like you guys are lying. I know that you're clicking on ads, right? Um, and the reason people didn't think they were clicking on ads is because they were so relevant uh, because Google had taken that next step of figuring out what data do we need to show relevant ads that are actually better answers than the organic results. And I think the same is going to happen with advertising. So as publishers and channels really expose that new level of data, maybe make it easier to, to, to show the right ads at the right time to the right user, um, people are going to be like, yeah, this is great. This is exactly what I was looking for. And, uh, and they'll stop hating ads. And that'll move all of us uh, forward in this industry. There you go. Stop. So our goal is to, to make people stop hating ads. That's it. Exactly. Well, I appreciate you taking uh, quite a bit of time. Uh, to, to spend some time with us today talking about this week in ad tech. If you want more of, uh, of Frederick, you can find him on Twitter, Silicon Valleys, spelled like his last name is spelled. And if you're on Blab right now, it's pretty easy to find him on Twitter. Uh, and then if you're interested in checking out his company, we'll post the link again, Optimizer, uh, free trial. People can sign up, get started right away. 
Um, also self plug ad stage is a little bit of a different uh, product. We go across all five networks, Google, Bing, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, also free trial. And then if you don't care at all about platforms, but you do want to keep in touch with what's going on in ad tech, you can sign up for our This Week in Ad Tech newsletter. And those usually fuel the conversation uh, for each week's podcast, which you can also join at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time. A lot of things to plug. So thank you again, Frederick, for joining. And uh, we'll see you on the conference circuit. Thank you, Paul. See you. All right. Bye-bye.